This morning is the second half of a message that I started last week, and I was way too ambitious. I thought we could cover way more ground than we were able to. Thankfully, we broke it off at a good point, but I want you to know, if you weren't with us last week and you haven't yet had a chance to hear either the podcast audio of that sermon or to watch that sermon on Facebook or our website, I'm going to quickly refer to some things that you will not understand what I'm talking about. Now, you might nod your head and go, okay, that makes a little bit of sense, but you're really going to get the most meat out of today if you go back and listen to last week's sermon if you have not heard it yet. Um, Last week's core concept was that people can change. We've been talking about who Jesus is. We've been trying to clarify and somewhat address and fix the whole in our discipleship. It's been helpful to us these four or five weeks to think in terms of apprenticeship, to take the model that Jesus used in the New Testament as a rabbi, and therefore to take his disciples as what we might say it's Talmudim, would be the common word in that day, that they are not just students, that they're not just followers, but that they're emulating the life of Jesus. That's our model when we talk about discipleship, being disciples of Jesus. That if we take that to its logical conclusion, we realize that we don't have a Jesus on earth right now to physically follow. So we saw in John 14 and 15 that Jesus sends his spirit, that the spirit becomes our rabbi. The spirit is another of the same kind, according to Jesus' words, that the spirit of God is the spirit of Jesus. And so as we abide in the spirit of Jesus, we bear the fruit of the spirit. And last week we began to address the problem that arises. We can raise those lofty goals in front of ourselves. We can tell one another, oftentimes in our Christian marriages, we tend to do this in a way that's unhelpful. We can point out Bible verses that might fix our spouse's problems when maybe we can spend a little more time applying that to our own selves. But what do we do when we understand what needs to be done and yet it isn't happening? What do we do when we can clearly identify, even name, maybe we've even memorized the fruit of the Spirit and yet they don't seem to be coming up out of our lives? Well, the conclusion we reached last week is that the system that we use is perfectly designed to give us the results that we're getting And therefore, there must be a system in play. There must be something forming you and I, something shaping us that's leading us away from bearing fruit instead of leading us into bearing fruit. And so we talked about the first of two paradigms, what I call static spiritual formation. Static spiritual formation is essentially the things that are working on you, that are forming you, and all you have to do is wake up in the morning. And these five things are working on you, bombarding you, infiltrating your mind and your heart and your body. There's basically five factors, so we'll run back through this rapidly in case you weren't here last week. First is stories that we believe. We said last week that in modern times, many of us learn principles for life or morals from people like Obi-Wan Kenobi or Peter Parker or Hagrid. These become our stories. This is in some way our modern pantheon, whereas the ancient Romans looked to Zeus and Hera and Hades to teach them morals and life lessons, and the ancient Hebrews looked to Abraham and David and Esther to teach them morals and life principles. We tend to look to our modern stories. Second is our routines. Things like scrolling your phone right before bed or choosing to drink too much in the winter or laughing along with your coworkers as they mock their spouses. These are things that we might be passively participating in, They're unconscious rhythms of our minds and lives. Maybe we've inherited them from our parents or from a mentor, or we've just simply taken them on because they're the path of least resistance. But over time, they shape us. Third is our relationships. The people whom we choose to have in our lives form us. Even if our group is known for being anti-something, whether it's anti-mainstream or anti-the-left or anti-this or anti-that, we still coalesce around people that are just like us. Even if we're kind of thinking that we're defining ourselves by what we're unlike, we still wind up in a group that's totally homogenous, and eventually we, we become identical to them. Number four is our environment. We talked about last week how Anchorage has a plan for your life, not the mayor, not necessarily the city council, but the city itself is a formation machine. 
Anchorage wants you to blow your PFD every year on new skis or for you to get more into craft beer or for you to hike flat top and then judge other people for hiking flat top, right? You've experienced this. But we also talked about how your cell phone is an additional environment that you live in. Because you and I are on this side of 2007. If you don't know, that's the beginning of what we call the digital age. Two things happened in 2007. Does anybody know? Two things? The iPhone came out in 2007. Never before could infinite knowledge be in your pocket. And second, Facebook went from being an invite-only, college-level networking site to being globally available to everybody. And those two things have changed, I would argue, permanently, the atmosphere of how we are shaped and who we are becoming. Finally is our experiences. We grow either toward our experiences or away from them, but nothing that happens to us, none of those experiences are functionally neutral in our lives. Even when we have healed from negative things, from traumas from our past, they still factor in. We still remember those things. We have to know ourselves and know how we've been shaped. So that's the list of five. Those are the things that make up what we call static spiritual formation. Things that are working on you and all you have to do is wake up in the morning and you are being bombarded. Now from my perspective, that's formidable. For these things to be working on you 24-7, I don't think it has ever been harder to be a disciple than it is right now. And I want to be clear with you what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we are under more persecution than any other period of time in church history. I don't think that's the case. But I don't think that human beings have ever been drowning under a waterfall of ideologies the way that we are right now. You could argue at the pinnacle of other civilizations in human history, maybe if you were an apprentice to a Plato or an Aristotle, maybe then the ideological waves that were crashing over your mental beach were overwhelming to the level that they are today, but that's a maybe. I would argue at no other point in history have we been bombarded every second, especially considering that you carry around a portal to the digital formation machine that we call the internet. You carry it with you at all times. Pastor Tim Keller says this, he, he'll use the phrase, when you see this quote, moral ecology, what he's talking about is how we are formed. So it, it works in line with what we're discussing. He asks a question. He says, why is a moral ecology so crucial? Why is it important that we understand how we are formed? The crisis is this. Despite its incoherent moral cosmology, I know, probably another word that you don't use at the dinner table. He's just saying, despite the incoherence of how our culture develops its morals, there's no rhyme or reason to how we land on what's important to us. Secular culture has created an enormously powerful, constantly immersive moral ecology, you can read that as formation machine, through the digital revolution, and it overwhelms the two or three hours a week that Christians worship and study in church. The amount of time that we spend on our phones in a day, the number of images and videos and repetitive slogans that we see, makes the most immersive set of practices ever. It engages the imagination with narratives. It makes the influence and consumption of TV, which was already a concern a generation ago, look tiny by comparison. Those consuming digital content, in other words, every single one of you, are being deeply catechized or formed for far more hours in a week and far more effectively than anything the church is doing. And whether you like that or not, that is your lived experience. Unless you are here seven days a week, spending more than three hours every one of those days, deeply immersed, not just in study of God's word, but Christian rhythms, you don't stand a chance. It's impossible for you. You are on your phone an average of two plus hours a day. You touch your screen several thousand times a day in a period of about 72 different instances of interaction. Every trip to the restroom, every time you're at a red light, 
Every time a song shuffles on your playlist and you don't like that one, so you skip to the next one. Every time you get a text in the middle of a phone call while you're on the line with customer service and you have to use another app to pull up your service number, you are constantly engaging with information and all of that information is just a little bit loaded. There's always an angle. Somebody is tracking you. For instance, yesterday, my wife's phone lost service. I called AT&T and within five minutes, I was on the phone with somebody in another country and he was able to turn my wife's phone back on inside of our house when we couldn't get it to work. And he did it like it was no big deal. He was like, well, we'll just start here. I can flip it back on, just ask her if it's on. So I did, she was like, no, it's off. And he was like, I can just, we'll have her just flip it back on. I'll take care of it from my end. Everything that you do is tracked, everything you do is analyzed, and I'm not here to reinforce some conspiracy theory that you have. I wanna let you know, if you feel like this is having an effect on you, it is, and it's designed to. And so you and I need a method, we need a plan, we need, I would argue, a lifestyle that is at least as immersive as the passive factors that are working on us constantly. So where do we find that? How do we counter something this massive, something this significant, a formation machine of unprecedented size in human history? How can we actually change to become more like Jesus instead of changing to become more like Instagram or more like AT&T or more like our favorite football team or whatever else all of our targeted ads are constantly bombarding us with? Well, before I answer that question, I want to argue that it may be different from what you expect. I want to pick on, if I can, two spiritual cliches of the 1900s that have unfortunately become widely accepted among Christians, especially in the West. And I think that these have traction for you. You're going to to nod your head that you've heard these things before because they come up in casual conversation and because oftentimes we treat Scripture like a fortune cookie fortune. We just kind of grab one that we like and we write it on something and hang it somewhere in our house and we kind of go, that's going to be my verse. And it doesn't seem to have maybe the, the effect that we hoped that it would, but we still kind of train ourselves, even though it's not working, that maybe this is the way. So here's the first, what I would call fallacy of our formation. The idea that all you need to do is know the Bible. I think this is a fallacy. If you hear that and that's all you take away as your discipleship model, then it turns into you reading and studying and memorizing and then reading books about the Bible and then listening to Bible Answer podcasts And hear me, please, okay? I want to be very, very careful because this is probably the riskiest thing that I've said in five weeks of this sermon series to you. You've got to hear me all the way out. Remember who is speaking to you. We spent 40 weeks in Exodus, okay? I love the Bible. I am not at all trying to minimize the role the Bible plays in your life. We did more than one message in Exodus on the furniture in the tabernacle, okay? We take the Word of God seriously at this church. I will never suggest that you read less of the Bible, but we have maybe, I would argue probably, inherited much of our discipleship strategy from the enlightenment. This is an enlightenment concept, that all we need is more information. If we could just get it into our heads, our lives would immediately change. Unfortunately, to me, that's asking too much of your mind. I don't think your mind is designed to be the engine room of your life. I believe it has much more to do with your spirit, your heart, your soul, the things that you love. The shortcoming of all you need to do is know the Bible is not the Bible, it's you. You are the shortcoming in that process. There is so much more to you than your mind. Have any of you ever heard of Rene Descartes before? You don't even know what I said, right, Rene? Okay, have you heard of this phrase? You've heard someone say before, I think, therefore, I am. Yes, okay, Rene said that. He said it in French, but we say it in English. Rene was one of the fathers of the Enlightenment. So this is just me kind of trying to unpack my point for you a little bit here. Rene Descartes saw human beings as what he called thinking things. He would argue that the foundational level of who we are is our mental capacity to know. 
And that's what sets us apart from animals. It's what makes us different from plants. I think it's an oversimplification. Um, his view of humanity, however, though, has shaped our Western world. It's shaped our education system. That education system has directly impacted the way that we do church. The fact that we have the word school in Sunday school, we did not think of school first. We figured out what was working in the education system and brought it into the church uh, in the name of teaching people more about the Bible, which, again, isn't wrong, but it's not the whole picture. I told you a few weeks ago that our discipleship plans have been shaped too much by modern education theories. This is what I was talking about. When Rene Descartes argued that all people were as thinking things, when the Enlightenment tried to communicate to you that the most important part of your body and mind and spirit is your mind, your being is primarily how you process information, he was wrong. We see it all around us. It doesn't work. Your existence as a human being is not predicated on your ability to intake knowledge alone. Anybody who's ever taught seventh grade knows how this works, right? You can tell a seventh grader all the right things to do. They can memorize it, write it on a paper, and make an A, and then leave your classroom and ruin their life and be a total knucklehead. And we don't necessarily get better at that naturally the longer that we age. We tend to just learn to continue to reinforce that. That's why we have people who can go and pursue incredibly hard education, get it all, get the certificates, get the degrees, go and get the job, and still have no idea how to be a father, how to be a husband, how to be a son, how to be a servant in the church, how to follow Jesus. Simply intaking information does not immediately make us able to do all of those things. If that was true, if we were primarily thinking things, then we could just think something, we could know it in our head, and then we would go do it immediately. So I'll ask you, how does that work in your daily life? We could watch one documentary about healthy eating and give up meat and dairy and sugar for life, right? we just go, well, if that's the way it is, that's the right idea. I didn't know that before. I can tell I'm poisoning my body and I'm done with it for life. Game over. I'll just only eat vegetables. Or to make it more biblical, we could read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And at the end of it, we could say, great, now I love my enemies because I know that I'm supposed to. I know that it's possible. And I'll never even think about retaliation again. How nice would that be? That's not the way it works. The problem is that knowing something is not the same thing as doing something. And doing something is not the same thing as wanting to do something. Three different degrees there. We all know a lot of things that we don't do. And we also know things that we don't even want to do, even though we know that it's right. The Apostle Paul put it to words in this way, in Romans chapter 7. He said, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, he's talking about his soul, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul understood that there was more to him than his mind and that only knowing the right thing in his mind was insufficient to transform his life. Nobody knew the law better than Paul, and yet here he admits in his letter to the Romans, every time he thinks to do right, his body, his soul, his spirit want to do something wrong. What this means for our apprenticeship to Jesus is that we can't think our way into Christ-likeness. And I think this is a paradigm shift for you and I. This is an idea I've been trying to drive at for four weeks here. We cannot simply rely on information intake to transform us. Your mind is essential, but you can't think your way to Christ-likeness. The way of Jesus is a way. It's not just a set of ideas. Even Jesus, if you're having trouble with this, this idea, he countered the modern thinkers of his day. They expected knowledge of the Bible alone to lead them to new life. And yet, all of the scriptures that they seem to have memorized were used as tools to attack and destroy the lives of the people at the margins of their culture. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Hear Jesus in John chapter 5. He says this in verse 39. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. 
You think it's all about the written word. And it is they that bear witness about me. He's saying if you understood what they were leading you to, they would do their job. They would lead you to eternal life. But yet, verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the challenge that the wrong model of discipleship introduces into our churches, is we begin to disciple people toward ideas, concepts, principles, even morals, none of which on their own are bad, but none of which can function in the same way that Jesus can function. We can't just get people to Jesus' ideas. We have to get them all the way to him personally. It's the only way transformation happens. And so even Jesus understands, yes, you can pour over the Bible as much as you want to, but if you're not using it as a tool to get you to him, that you might receive life from him and repent and follow him, then the scriptures are not doing their job for you. In other words, you cannot absorb salvation by mastering the chapters and verses of the Bible. You will not enter into an eternal kind of life by simply filling your mind with knowledge. The point of the Bible is to get you to Jesus. And if you find yourself rejecting his character or rejecting his lifestyle in the name of defending the Bible, your rabbi may be more Rene Descartes and less Jesus of Nazareth. So, spiritual fallacy one is all that you need to do is know the Bible. On the other end, the other end of the spectrum, the extreme, is the idea that you don't need to do anything. God will do it all. You may have heard the popular phrase, let go and let God. That's right. That's not in the Bible. Uh, We can counter that cliche with another cliche that I think is a lot better. So if you can kind of flush that concept, I'm going to give you something new to reinstall in the gap that you left in your head. I just shared this with a lady this last week who'd been feeling stuck in her emotional spiritual life. This is very probably a St. Augustine quote. We don't know for sure. But he said, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. I put probably there because we don't, like if you try to figure out what St. Augustine said, nobody really knows. He wrote it in another language. It's kind of like those Abraham Lincoln quotes that float around Facebook. Nobody really knows. We weren't there. He could have said it. Maybe he thought this way. But the concept is good. There is an idea of partnership in the way that we develop into Christ's image. And it's very possible, depending on what Protestant sort of background you came from, maybe you grew up Catholic or you weren't a part of the church previous to right now, that this is a popular idea for, for people that you've loved. And I'm not trying to attack or tear those people down. I just want to help you not waste any more time waiting on God to do a thing that you've refused to even think about in your own life. Author Jerry Bridges, who wrote many great books, uh, among which probably the pinnacle is a book called The Pursuit of Holiness, he calls this idea dependent responsibility. Dependent responsibility. God has a role to play in your sanctification you have a role to play in your sanctification. Dallas Willard said it this way, and I've quoted this to you before, grace is not opposed to effort, grace is opposed to earning. And we equate those things in the West. We're so American dream oriented, we don't want to try hard at anything unless we can achieve something at the end. We've lost the concept of working hard at a thing that doesn't actually turn into like money or power or fame or more time for us. But within God's economy, we can work very hard at things simply because the one who loves our soul has invited us into that process. And then we can trust that in partnership with him, he will do the supernatural work required to make that a reality. But we don't have to waste our time sitting back and waiting. We partner with God. He has a part, and so do we. So with those fallacies pushed away, how do we change? It's not only by increasing our Bible knowledge, and it's not by doing nothing. So paradigm one was static spiritual formation Now we'll deal with dynamic spiritual formation. These are the things that you can choose to participate in that will form you into the image of Jesus. Thankfully, the way of Jesus is not simply just another way that we can be formed. It actually accounts for the formation machine that I just described to you earlier. So we're not simply trying to throw 
something against this machine that's forming us all the time, hoping that it sticks, Jesus accounts for the way that culture impacts you. The way of Jesus, the word of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, these things, these people are able to not only help you, but push out and eliminate the influence that is already inundating your mind and your life. Similar to uh, static spiritual formation, dynamic formation has five factors, and each of these will counter one of the factors of static formation. The first is teaching. So static formation would argue that the stories that we believe are formative. How do we counter those stories? Well, we need to learn a different story. We need to interact with something that is the true story. Um, It helps me to think in these terms. You may have struggled before, if you've read the Gospels, that there are many times where Jesus teaches and he never gives a command. He'll speak up, he'll share a parable that simply makes a statement about the way the world works. For instance, there's a, a particular story where he's at a party in a Pharisee's house. They're having a big dinner. This is before the Pharisees have decided that they don't like Jesus yet, and so they're all trying to kind of use him. He's like the latest up-and-coming young rabbi with the book deal and the podcast, and so they want to bring him in and show him off to the establishment. And while they're sitting together at this meal, the Pharisees just botch the whole thing. It's awful. They don't take care of Jesus. They don't honor him. They don't do anything the way they're supposed to, yet they spend all their time talking about how they live this model life or whatever. And so Jesus simply says, in the kingdom of heaven, those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. He just drops that bomb on them at dinner, and then they just kind of look at each other. And there's a great point in the middle of that story where a guy speaks up and says, blessed are all who enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, he's trying to kind of get everybody back on track and back to the party, and it's just quiet after that. It's really funny. But that's an instance that's very common in Jesus' teaching. Jesus isn't always trying to get you to do something. He's actually trying to help you understand the way the world works. The new dichotomy of the kingdom of God come to earth means that the rules have changed. And sometimes we struggle in our discipleship process because we try to apply all the rules of how the world works to the church. We want the church to be successful. We want the church to be affluent. We want the church to be larger and moving faster and growing more rapidly and reaching more people of very different demographics. And we kind of set these targets that maybe are okay with God, but we don't derive them from Jesus' life. We derive them from the world, from business, from leadership principles. This is a terrible pandemic in many of our churches in the West. My argument today is that instead of trying to read the cultural stories into the church, we need, if we're going to be formed by Jesus, to read Jesus' story into our culture. We need to be able to say, no, that isn't the way the world works. It's not the only way the world works. And God's kingdom on earth empowers me to believe a different perspective. I have a very unpopular opinion I'm going to share with you now about Western Protestant churches. I already stepped on a few of your toes when I told you that it's not all about Bible reading. Here's my unpopular opinion. I think in Western churches, at least in my 31 years, we have massively overemphasized the writing of the Apostle Paul, and we have massively underemphasized the Gospels. Now hear me, all of the Bible, breathed out by God and inspired, useful for all the things that it's good for. No part of the Bible is a waste of your time. But I believe, because I've asked a lot of you and you've told me this is the case, many of us have gone to more than one church where a pastor has preached a four to eight week series through an epistle and then he goes to the old testament and then he goes back to another epistle and then he goes back to the old testament and he goes back to another epistle i've been guilty of this in different times unfortunately few of us have spent significant amounts of time under preaching that came straight from the gospels and i think i know why if i can pull the curtain back for you a little bit more There is an entity that I call the church industrial complex. I'm stealing that from a speech that a president made at the end of his tenure about the military industrial complex. But there is a system in play in the West, specifically in America, that produces preachers and produces churches and produces stuff that meets a certain worldly standard. 
And I think that preaching a gospel is too hard if you value what the church industrial complex values. I think epistles are easier to crunch down into a short series. I think pastors oftentimes are scared to start a long series because they think they might get a better job offer and have to leave and go to another church. Um, I think that, frankly, many times we are really nervous about some of the things that Jesus actually said that are pretty hard to understand compared to the Apostle Paul who tends to be very on the nose, black and white, and approachable. But here's the deal, church. We need Jesus' teachings. We need to hear from him. We need them straight, unfiltered. We need them frequently. We need to study the word together. We need faithful men and women to instruct us in the way of Jesus so that we can learn new stories from him to replace the ones our culture has handed us. We need stories that are not just compelling, but stories that are true and stories that are worth staking our lives on. Here's what Jesus said in what we call the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. He told his disciples, go and make disciples or make apprentices of all of the nations of the earth and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It seems like from those verses, Jesus' perspective is that his own teachings are sufficient for apprenticeship. This doesn't mean we don't need the rest of the New Testament, but the epistles, the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation, they are helpful in that they clarify and apply and reinforce the teachings of Jesus. But each of those epistles is written by a person who had to personally interact with, meet Jesus, and be changed by him. And so if we jump that shark and try to get right down into the organizational structure of how a church is supposed to work and what is an elder and what is a deacon, and we don't actually know what Jesus told us to do day to day, We ought not be surprised when we get a big head and a small heart out of that process. That's what that will do for us. If we have used the epistles, the rest of the New Testament, the Revelation, the the Hebrew book, if we've used any of those for anything other than getting us closer to Jesus, then we have misused them. So we need teaching, and we need teaching from Jesus in order to counter the narratives that we believe. Second, we need practices. This is where the spiritual disciplines come into play, or what I like to call the practices of Jesus. We said two weeks ago that they are a means to an end. The practices, the disciplines are a way to help us get into God's presence because they refocus us and they remind us of his nearness. They are not magic and they are not the point. I cannot say that to you often enough. And as excited as some of us are about getting into the practices later this fall, I want to warn you that the practices are often tedious, they are usually boring, and they rarely produce instant results. They are practice in the gym, repetition over and over and over and over and over again. And there will be many days where you will engage in these things and feel no different. And yet, over time, as you look back across your life, if you are willing to discipline yourself, you will be formed in a different direction from the way the formation machine of the world and culture wants to make you. They do work. And they will eventually replace the subconscious habits that we live into with life-giving and Jesus-centered patterns of thinking Patterns of processing, patterns of preparing, patterns of growth. The practices, and this is a key thought from my perspective, the practices help us become the kind of people for whom the way of Jesus is well within our spiritual capacity. Many of us can tell that that's not the case today. It's outside of our capacity to snap our fingers and become like the vision that Jesus casts in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. One of the things the disciplines will do is they will increase our proximity and our tenure with Jesus, the time we spend and the nearness that we have to him, and that will eventually develop in us spiritual muscles that are currently atrophied or non-existent. 
You've heard me say this before, but first we change our habits, and then our habits change us. Third is community. So the world offers us relationships. We pick and choose the relationships that we want. How is community different from that? Community in Christ is the answer to the relationships that we naturally build for ourselves. And I define community this way. I believe that our community is the people whom we inherit from Jesus. So the relationships are who we choose. The people that we like, the people who have something to offer us, the people who are attractive on some metric, not necessarily only you know, romantically, but, but attractive because they have resources, attractive because they represent an opportunity or a skill or development personally for us. Community is the people we inherit, the people written into the will of our lives by Jesus, who says, I'm going to call and save these people, and then I'm going to plug all of you branches into one vine, and you don't get to pick the branch that's next to yours. It might be a branch you would have never spent any time interacting with, but if both of you are abiding in me, rooted in the vine, you will bear fruit. And one of those fruit will be patience, and you'll need it if you're going to interact with other people. And gentleness, because you're going to feel harsh with the people that are around you. And kindness, because you're going to want to be really mean to people that keep embarrassing you, or embarrassing the church, or embarrassing Jesus because they don't know how to talk right about what the kingdom of heaven is and is not. We grow into the kinds of people who can tolerate one another by being around each other. This is the way that God grows us. The people who we are in a life group with, the people that we serve alongside, we need each other. And we believe, I believe wholeheartedly, that apprenticeship to Jesus is never singular. If you look even at Jesus' model in Mark chapter 1, when he began to call the 12 disciples, he started with two. There was never one disciple in the entire history of Jesus being a rabbi. There was never a single individual following him alone. Simon and Andrew are called in Mark chapter 1 verse 17 if you want to look it up yourself. The two primary functions of community, the way that community works on me to help form me, is first it reveals who I really am. And then it reminds me who Jesus really is. That's the two functions of community. We, we use the language at True North of to know and be known. What we mean by that is we want to be near enough to other people that our real self is revealed because we can hide it from everybody else in our life. Maybe not our spouse, but we might not bring that up in life group. We should, but we don't, we don't always follow through on that commitment. And then to remind us in light of our failing, in light of our negative things that we bring to the world, who Jesus is and how he responds to who we are and how if we are abiding in him, he does produce fruit in us. The last three factors of dynamic spiritual formation all derive from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to read verses 15 through 18, and then we're going to quickly hammer through these. Paul says this, To this day, whenever Moses is read, in other words, the Old Testament, the law, a veil lies over the hearts of those who hear. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, all of us together, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Jesus started with two disciples and now we experience transformation together. That's what Paul said. Now we all together, we are being transformed into the same image. We are becoming more like each other because we are becoming like the same objective, the same thing, the same person, Jesus. So we do this together. Fourth is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit counters our environment. And I want to explain this with a little bit of nuance to you. By abiding in Jesus, we begin to do this thing that we've sort of drawn out from Brother Lawrence of the resurrection, practicing the presence of God. We've, we've interacted with it a little bit as the idea of praying without ceasing. But it's the concept that instead of our physical environment being the primary environment that we interact in, the presence of the Holy Spirit becomes our environment. Wherever we are, we are in the presence of God. That's what that means. Being in two places at once. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Getting into God's presence and staying there. We want as people to re remember and understand and be aware that we are always with the Spirit of God and he is always with us. 
I asked you two weeks ago to try to spend some time thinking about how you can start to do that in your life, but I'll warn you as you begin to think through, how can I get into God's presence and stay there? Without the Spirit of God, you will make almost no progress on that front. So we hope to do what Brother Lawrence teaches us, to practice the presence of God so that the primary environment that we start and end our day in is God's presence with his Spirit. Many of the practices of Jesus will hurt, or they will bring to surface old hurts that we've suppressed. When the presence of God is where we spend our days, those buried wounds, those still painful, will become approachable for us. Our transformation comes from the Spirit. That's what Paul just said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And then finally, in response to our experiences, we have spiritual realities. The reality of the kingdom of heaven is that it is not a faraway place. We oftentimes think of heaven as like the top floor of a giant elevator in the sky or another planet somewhere out there in the physical cosmos and, and our, we have to load all of our prayers up in a spaceship and send them to God and he can hear them and then maybe he'll take the time to actually mess with our lives. But Jesus said at the time that he arrived in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of heaven had become a very nearby reality. He uses the language of it's at hand. It's like right there within arm's reach of you. The kingdom of God has come near. The teachings of Jesus, as we said earlier, often come without commands attached, and we are quick to dismiss those in favor of the parts of the Bible that are easier for us to turn into checklists. Much of Jesus' teaching is on spiritual or heavenly realities, and the more that we learn to see the world this way, the more the way of Jesus will become second nature to us. Dallas Willard encourages apprentices of Jesus to embrace the experiences of life, but to always interpret them through the lens of the gospel. So this is our answer to the kind of Christianity that wants to have its head in the clouds all the time. The kind of Christianity that refuses to acknowledge real hurt, real pain, real damage, real abuse. Willard says this. He says, we are not to try to get into a position to avoid trials. And we are not to catastrophize and declare the end of the world when things happen to us. We are to see every event as an occasion in which two things happen. The competence and the faithfulness of God will be confirmed to us. That is your new worst-case scenario, Christian. The very worst thing that can possibly happen to you if you are living life in Jesus' hands is that the competence and faithfulness of God will be confirmed to you again. He will prove it again. Willard says, thus do we know the concrete reality of the kingdom of the heavens. This is what Paul means when he says we behold the glory of the Lord with our veils removed, with obscurity removed from our eyes so that we can clearly see and understand what God is doing right now in front of us. And this is either real to us or it's not. Contrary to the teachings of the traditions that you may come from, Paul is not using metaphor in 2 Corinthians 3. He is referencing a very real experience that Peter and James and John shared when they briefly saw Jesus fully glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels. The spiritual realities of the kingdom of God change the rules of human life, and they allow us to become people for whom suffering is meaningful, people for whom suffering is never wasted, people who, according to Hebrews 10, willingly accept the plundering of our property, people who gladly spend and are themselves spent for the sake of others, to use the language of 2 Corinthians 12. So by receiving teaching, by practicing disciplines, by living in community, abiding with the Spirit, and filtering our experiences through what we know of God's present kingdom, we can participate in our own formation. We can willingly follow Jesus. We can become like him. And this was exactly what the first disciples experienced when Jesus sent them out in his name. We'll finish with the scripture. The 72 returned to Jesus with joy, having been sent out by him on mission. 
They said to him, Lord, even the demons are, sub- are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, Jesus' language for the demonic, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, catch this, it's not what you're able to do that's most important. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Following Jesus will make you like him. You will become like him. You will be able to do things that he says you ought to be doing, to actually go to war with the presence of God's enemy in the lived lives of your neighbors, in your own home. You'll be able to pray in a way that will impact people. You'll be able to ask God for things, and Jesus says if your hearts are aligned, he will give you what you ask for. These are not clever riddles for us to try to turn into metaphors so that we can apply them in some symbolic way. Jesus is literally intending for our lives to change, to become like his, and yet he reminds his disciples at the end of it all, the thing that is most important is that you are mine. And that brings us full circle. As we encounter the disciplines, as we attempt to pray, to try to open our minds up to the idea that the Holy Spirit is real and he might really want to interact with us day to day, none of those things becomes the objective. No new spiritual superpower is on the table for you and I. What is available is for us to take our first love of Jesus, to walk that out in a lifestyle that actually makes us look like and become like him, and the point remains him the whole time, to be near to him, to be known by him, to behold him up close and personal, and to follow him. And with that life on offer for us, we become people who can resist the natural passive formation that the world is engaging on us against our will. We become the kind of people for whom the way of Jesus is well within our capacity. We become like him, and we're able to do what he did. So we'll take a break next Sunday for Easter. We're going to preach a specific parable from Jesus, but when we come back in two weeks, when we gather together on the 24th, we're going to begin working through in greater detail these five factors of dynamic spiritual formation. We're going to look at Scripture, we're going to talk about how they work, and try to lay some vision for you of where we're headed beginning in the fall as we engage with some of these disciplines and principles to actually follow Jesus. So, with that said, let me pray for you guys, and we'll be done today. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the chance to gather today. Uh, against the odds to a certain degree. We are very thankful for uh, just your timeliness and the work of your hand to give us the opportunity to gather in this location. We pray, God, now for the folks that are going to come in in just a few minutes and jump into worship themselves for the 11 o'clock service. We appreciate that though we are separate in different service times, we are still one church, and we long for the day, God, when you will put us back together in just a few short months. As we see today in your word that there is a model for us and how we can be changed, I pray that we would be open to that. That's all really the homework that we have, is to just open our minds, open our hands, to ask ourselves some diagnostic questions about what has worked, what has not worked in the past. And I pray, God, that you would give us uh, faith in your word, in the process that's always been the same for how we're formed into your image. And I ask God, as I have many, many times in the last couple of years, that you would make this church remarkably different that we would grow into your image and become people who are able to live a life like yours, to live into your image, to live in discipline, to live in obedience, and to do that because it's the most freeing thing in the world. We love you, God. We pray and trust that you'll use the remainder of our time today. Be with us as we close in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.